On today's Film and Whiskey, it's the finale of Zach's Whiskey Corner. We're turning the reins over to our friend Zach Johnston from Uproxx one last time as he and his editor, Steve Bramucci from Uproxx, revisit one of America's most beloved westerns and drink a whiskey that embodies the spirit of the frontier. That's all ahead on Zach's Whiskey Corner. Hello, everybody. This is Zachary Johnson again, and this is Zach's Whiskey Corner of the Zillman Whiskey Podcast. I'm very excited because this is the finale of my short little session here on the Film of Whiskey Pod. And we are ending with a hugely important, amazing film, which casting a Sundance kid with a whiskey from right by Hole in the Wall in Cody, Wyoming, Wyoming Whiskey. I brought on a very special guest to round out this series, a massive, massive fan of this film like me, and a fan of the whiskey, my editorial director at Up Rocks, Mr. Stephen Bermucci. Hello, it's so good to be here. You were like, this is a uh, huge, incredible, and I thought you were going to say guest, and I was, re- I was, I was ready <laughs> to pop in, and then you were like, movie, with a me- mid-level sort of guest. Uh, oh, no. Uh, no. Don't let him fool you guys. He is an expert on this film. There's a, there's a big reason he's here, because... Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely you. an expert on the film. Yeah, no, yeah. I got that bit wired. So it's yeah. good to see you. As always, we work together day in and day out but i do like to just hear your sonorous voice <laughs> indeed and we actually sort of bonded over this movie years and years ago i remember you texting me on a weekend and i think i was hung over in bed and you're asking me you were just seeing what was up and i was like oh i'm watching butch and sundance yeah like, that's my favorite film i'm like that's my favorite film yeah <laughs> yeah certainly <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have so much to say. I don't know that we're in it yet, but I have so much to say because I think it's it's the favorite film for a certain type of person. I think I just learned this week that it's like I, I did zero research because I know the movie so well, but I like did one Google search and I think Brad Pitt just said it was his favorite movie too. So yeah, it's now so- between between you and him, I'm the least attractive person to like the movie. <laughs> Oh, now you're too kind, sir. So um, before we dive in, why don't we uh, tell the audience a little bit about what we do? Because it's sort of, sure. uh, you know, we started working together in 2016. I think it was uh, early January, February 2016. Right. And um, back then you were building the life section. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that and how you know, kind of the whole drinks thing came about? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so I was using a method called the Pomodoro method, which is a method for people like me who, um, need to, I mean, all freelancers really are, are in a journey of, of perfecting their focus. Um, and what it is, is it's, it's based on an old, like Italian tomato timer that could tell time two ways. And it basically, it, it tells you when you've done 25 minutes of work and then you get like five minutes off and then 25 minutes, five, f- 25 minutes. And then the third one, fourth one is like 15 minute break. And it was, I, I found it to be like a really good kind of internal metronome to make sure I was pushing. But then in the five minutes, you're supposed to do 50 push-ups or, you know, a couple barbell curls or whatever. And I found myself just over and over. I was a freelance travel writer and I was going to this website called Uproxx. 
And I was reading, I knew their voice better than anyone. I was reading every single article that came through because I was essentially like refreshing this, this website as it was just blooming. It was yeah. rapidly expanding. It was posting more and more posts. And it had such a clear editorial vo- voice. And, and like so many people in kind of the mid-2000s, I hadn't seen that before, right? I was, I was used to news being really detached, which is kind of a fiction that, that news tells us that it's detached. And here, this blog era didn't have any um, posturing as being detached. It, it made jokes and it, it you know, was, had a real clear POV. And I just really liked it. So maybe like 2015, I sent a cold letter over the transom and it just said, hey, uh, I think that you guys could do travel and I'm a travel expert and I think you could do food and I'm a food expert and here are my credentials. I had just won a travel writing award that was pretty significant. So I was kind of feeling myself. Here are my credentials. What do you think? And to be honest, like talk about thinking small, when I had pitched that to our editor-in-chief, Brett Michael Dykes, I had thought that maybe he would take a flyer on me because I came with a lot of PR contacts and I I, I felt like I could build a travel section and I felt like um, I could get people press trips and it could be a nice little bonus for all the hardworking team members. Uh, and I kind of pitched it a little bit more like that and and he and I hopped on the phone you know, back then I thought it was kind of moving slow, but now I realize just how overworked every editor is. He and I hopped on the phone, you know, four or five times over the course of six months. And then he was like, yeah, I think we do this. And uh, we make you the editor. And it was a pretty significant job offer. It was like a full-time job. It was, it came with, you know, benefits and these things I had never had as a freelancer. And I really dove into making the section something that was that was really viable. And early on, and I, I, I never know how you feel about this when I tell it, but early on, uh, I had I had a couple young writers, and they were getting harangued by you a little bit in in the comments of posts, and they were right to be harangued. And it was like I was reading things, and I was like, "Wow, that's." You know, it it taught me a lot. Like reading your comments taught me a lot. They angered me because they were public and I felt shame and embarrassed or whatever. But they also taught me a lot. And and they actually these were mostly comments about travel writing. And they actually taught me a lot about travel writing, which is to to limit the prism of people. I think the most common comment from you was that, you know, I was I was assigning these 25 year olds this job of like making broad, sweeping statements or think pieces when that's like literally impossible and yeah. and if you look now 10 years down the track eight years down the track like everything that i do in travel writing is teaching people to view it just through their prism and that's all because that's the only place where they have true authority and you know even on uprox the travel writing pieces that we publish are more like a 25 year old females first time <laughs> right. in houston a guide and yeah. and that that writer has incredible authority towards, and so um, you really you really did teach me a lot while infuriating me. <laughs> and so on on one of those posts, I had written I I had written a post of my own back then. I was able to write quite a bit. I didn't have a big team, and the section wasn't viable yet. 
And I, I was really, I live in Southern California and I was really fascinated by these Disney adults who yeah. just go and like hang out. And I, I wrote an article about the case for going to Disneyland as an adult without kids. I didn't have kids at the time. And I was just kind of interested in that. And I went to Disneyland and I wrote a funny article about it. And for the first time ever, you were like, oh, I agree. This is good. <laughs> And I think we just had like some level of kismet. And then the next time you burnt someone down in the comments, I was like, well, if you're so smart, why don't you come write for us? And you were like, okay. <laughs> and, and, and then we hopped on the phone and we found out that like, we have a very similar speaking of prisms. We have a very similar prism in that we're both from the Pacific Northwest. We're both in the same age group. We both have a lot of the same outdoor interests. So we just got on yeah. like a house on fire. Uh, yeah. And then uh, you've obviously just been a, a star for the section since day one. And, and, you know, I consider everything that we built, we built together. You're, you're, you have been on the pulse of all of it. And then just to, for those interested in building a media company, um, that's something that's really interesting and, and that I think we're both good at. And something I pride myself on is knowing, knowing when lightning strikes, knowing when you, you have, you know, Quicksilver or whatever. And during the pandemic, you were at that point, you were doing five different things, which you were great at. Like the the thing is, we had had the conversation a bunch of about taking you off a few things, but you're just too good. And I, I didn't have the right. No, I mean, it's not I'm not blowing smoke. I, you know, I just didn't have the right people to do all the things that you did. So I, you know, we had talked about it and theorized about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't real to make you laser focused. And then, and then the pandemic hit and then you wrote an alcohol post and it was simple and it was easy and it went bananas. Yeah. And I think at the exact same time in both of our lives, we saw this really interesting opportunity to quadruple down on alcohol because people were, two things were happening, by the way. It's not just that people were in the home and they were getting drunk, there was, people were in the home, alcohol was coming into the home, but at the same time, we were in the middle of what I think you would agree, uh, you know, another bourbon boom wave. Yes. And yeah. so you have all this interest peaking and bourbon, you know, what I've realized through, through working with you is like, you talk to every single brand and education is so crucial to them. Well, if you have like 70 bourbon bottlers and distillers and 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 mixers and whatever and all of them are interested in education you get a pretty educated populace the populace is getting more educated people are in the home there's a lot of google searches we started doing gangbuster numbers and you and i had that conversation and it wasn't really about you focusing it was really like i think we both saw it was like i think i think this is your chance for superstardom i think you have a chance to be a megastar and you know, if if to draw a comparison between the two of us, I think you and I as trap what makes us good travel writers is that we're good at being neophytes. We're good at we're good at dipping yeah. in and dipping out. And and we can do that with a relatively high level of of authority. If I was fired tomorrow and hired by one of your competitors, I feel like I could write some bit of bourbon, not with the level of authority you have, but I know the industry pr pretty well. We're we're good at that. But instead we decided for you to just zero in laser focus and then what i always say when i talk about you behind your back um no i mean positively behind your back <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'll tell it to you too is that uh 
I've never I've never handed someone the ball so clearly um, and had them just grab it and run with it. And you were like, okay, I get this. I wrap my head around this. I actually have the you had worked in all those bars and and you knew bartending really well and you knew spirits. You had all the pedigree and you were like, I'm off to the races. And we yeah. drilled down our formatting and and what we wanted to do. And we balanced your desire to to respect the fact that um, you know, you have this desire to respect the fact that that everyone's taste is valid and whatever is your palate is your palate. And my desire to be like, nah, rank everything. <laughs> you know, I everyone wants to know, they need to know what to drink. I was really frustrated with um you know, reading articles as I was learning about about bourbon and editing your work and seeing what else was out in the marketplace, I had found a bunch of articles at outlets, actually really every other outlet that wasn't endemic, that was like five vanilla bourbons you got to try. But then like you, you just didn't know why to buy one and not the other. Right. So were right. they asking you to buy all five? And it's just like it just felt really mushy to me. And to put a really fine point on it, my God, you're going to have to edit this to shreds. But <laughs> to to put a really fine point on it, I came up as a travel writer in the era when I remember I was traveling through East Africa and I was reading The Lonely Planet and I was uh, I was driving down a road. I, I guess my girlfriend was driving at that time and I'm reading the book and it's like on your right is the oldest baobab tree in the region. And boom, there it is. And there should be someone spe- selling mangoes <laughs> underneath. And boom, there they are. And being that drilled down has been everything, has been absolutely essential to how I created Up Rock's life. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, is that we would be the end all and be all. And you have been that for bourbon and, and it's incredible to witness. And, and I, I have been honored to get to be your editor. So sorry. Well, There's my no, tirade. That's great. That's great. And it's sort of too... Great uh, segue brought to you by Segway. I think like that shift we had in 2020, like, you know, we had put our 10,000 hours in together, knowing each other and working with each other for those four or five years before that. Right. So it's kind of like when Butch and Sundance go down to South America, it's like they know how to rob a bank. Right. They're going to be able to do it. They can do it anywhere in the world. They can go to Australia and rob banks. They can go to Bolivia and yeah. rob banks. They don't need to be in Utah or Wyoming or Texas to rob banks. They can do it anywhere. And yeah. so we just started robbing different banks, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good segue. Good segue. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into the film. I mean, I'm uh, usually we go through the plot. We don't go by beat by beat. We just sort of go through okay. the movie in the way, uh, you know, talk about the things we love about it. I I grew up with this film. Like I probably saw it when I was a baby that I don't even remember. I remember seeing it when I was five or six with my old man at a drive-in uh, right. up in Port Townsend. Uh, the soundtrack was always part of my life growing up. You know, Burt Bacharach was like, sure. I think that was the only Burt Bacharach album we had. Right. Um, and was so historic, by the way, to, yeah. to have this one. He was a contemporary artist at that time. Yeah. People forget about that. And then two is that it, it didn't sound like cowboy music. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. for that sort of rag timey, you know, turn of that century era theme, you know, and I think that's yeah. why it works timelessly now. Um, but yeah, the, you know, this film was always part of my life. And I imagine, you know, when I first met you, I saw the Butch Cassidy and Sundance poster above your desk yeah. when uh, we first met and it was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, how at, long some point, at some point in the call, I, I do want to show it to the audience, but 
my desk is not in the best shape it's been in. Wow, it's all good. Um, what was your sort of first re- interaction with this film? Like, how long has it been part of your life? So I think as I've aged, I realized that my mom uh, had a real yen for the movie stars of her era that she um, that she was, you know, that she crushed on them. My mom's not much of a pop culture person, so I, I never would would have thought that. But when I was total side note, when I was 15, I was I was selling fake Oakley sunglasses throughout Portland, Oregon <laughs> and had a lot of money to burn because it was a really successful thing to do. <laughs> And I took my mom out to a fancy dinner and Ryan O'Neill was there from Love Boat. Yeah. And or Love Story. Sorry, Love Boat was the the TV show. And I had no idea who he was, but my mom kind of like went red in the face and and was kind (laughs) of flustered. And I I I I fashioned myself as like a, a, you know, 15 year old mafia kingpin, which was. Couldn't be further from the truth, but just was like how I set up my my vision of myself at 15. Don't and I, yeah, exactly. And I sent over a bottle of champagne to him and oh, he wow. came over and he assumed we were at a very expensive restaurant. You know, I a place that I would still cringe when I was paying for it to this day. It's still open. It's still in Portland. And I sent it over to him and it was expensive. And he obviously assumed that the 45-year-old woman did it. And so he walked He walked over to the table and he gave her like this beautiful kiss on the hand. And it was, it was the first time I think I ever made her genuinely proud. So was, anyway, I think she had a thing for movie stars. And when I was about eight years old, she gave me for Christmas one year, a just a couple VHS cassettes of, Butch and Sundance, uh, Cool Hand Luke, HUD, which is a wildly misunderstood film and not one that I should have been watching at that age. Harper, which oh, wow. is which is easily understood and not a, and and underrated, and Ombre, oh, wow, which okay. is which is more of a classic western than Butch and Sundance. I mean, yeah. was in some ways, I, I I think I remember Newman saying he took the Butch and Sundance script after Ombre because he wanted to to play with the genre and be in another western without without treading the same path. Yeah. It's so I, I saw it back then. Yeah. And I just loved it. I mean, you know, my my number two favorite movie is a more typical pick. Two favorite movies, probably Cool Hand Luke, but then number third, it would probably be like Princess Bride. And I think those are actually analogous in the sense that that they just are so lovely to sit with, right? Well, You're just, and that's the William Goldman of it all, right? Like, yeah. Engaging with that writing is so deeply human. Yeah, yeah. Films. Human, but also like, but also charming, charming. Charming. And yeah. like, there was this, there was this constant charm in Butch and Sundance that I saw again yeah. in, in like Princess Bride and the plot points of Princess Bride are maybe a little more for my age at the time, but, but yeah, it was like, there was this, you wanted to spend time with these people, which I didn't know up until that point was a thing that movies were about. Right. right. I, I knew sitcoms had that, like you wanted to spend time with Steve Urkel and, and Carl Winslow and all those people. And then I knew kind of like that, yeah, I just didn't know movies did that. And here it was doing that in an adventurous setting. It was just like made for me. And that's just it. Like that's a, the uh, Princess Bride 
is a good parallel because the the hero he he can kick your ass, but he kicks your ass by being smart. Sure, you know, like Butch is smart. Like that whole opening scene of the film, you know, where um, you know, Harry's you know sort of literally let's fight to the death for the leadership of the gang. Yeah, um, you know, he outsmarts him. Yeah, he still he still physically beats him, but he's outsmarts him first. Yeah, um, you know, just as a princess bride, like you know. Red pirate, he outsmarts everybody, but he can kick your ass if he needs to. Um, yeah, that's a that's a dangerous moment for that movie. By the way, that's like that's the buy-in moment of: Are you going to like a hero who is using smarts and his competitive edge and his cleverness edge as much as he's using brute force? Because because you know, Clint Eastwood would never have done that. No, brute force all the way. Yeah. And, yeah. and John, so many, Wayne, John, John Wayne would have never done that. There's no, there's no charm. There's no, like, there's no technicalities. You just yeah. you either knock his teeth in or you can't. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's more Gary Cooper, you know, high noon. Mm-hmm. It's like, I gotta, I gotta think this out and I gotta, you know, strategize and I need to use my brain. Yeah. Um, what's beautiful about the film. I mean, I think we both know the film well enough. Like it is very loosely based on the real life story. So we're not going to. Sure. Get too deep into the history of it. Um, so I love the real history. It's so much more vivid and just with, you know, the other people that were in the gang, which they never really get into in the film at all. Um, cause they focus just on Butch and Sundance, but sort of after we have that opening scene where, you know, Butch very much makes his authority known. Um, what's great about him is he takes the idea of the guy who was challenging him. Yeah. A very, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. That's smart. There's a lot okay. of, uh, there's a lot <laughs> of know? humility there. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And the, so, and the plan is to rob the train coming and going because they figure the second time they'll load it up because there's no way you need to rob a train twice. Right. Um, which is smart. And which it, is, wa- it was a brilliant moment. It was it. So I, I won't bog you down too much with history, but there's two pieces of history that I want to share with you that I, I, I think you probably know, but listeners might not. So first of all, there there was one thing that was really true about the movie, one thing that it treated as truly as gospel, which was that the real Butch Cassidy was not a good gunslinger. Right. And that and that he was actually a mystery to people because the historians, I'll show you one of my favorite books that your readers have to get on their shelves. Anyway, it's the it's the dictionary of or it's the encyclopedia of lawmen and bad guys, which I use for research all the time. And when they got around to doing the history of Butch Cassidy, remember, these were the first outlaws whose history was told while they were still alive. So Jesse James is a great example. and, And there's a Brad Pitt movie that actually shows this. But like he was having pulp novels making him famous while he was still operating, which was really bizarre. Um, it happened to one pirate. Bartholomew Roberts was written about a little bit, Black Bart, while he was still in his tenure. But for the most part, it was that that hadn't happened before. And so in this case, like it was really interesting to see that dialectic. Anyway, um, with Butch, as they started to research him, they were like, okay, well, let's look at what makes other people in the Wild West successful. Because he was wildly successful. He was incredibly yes. successful. Absolutely. They're like, okay, well, is he a good gunslinger? They're like, no, he's not a good gunslinger. Is he a good planner? No, he actually stole a lot of his pa- plans from members of his group, which is depicted exactly. in that first scene. 
okay, is he, uh, you know, is what is he good at? And they finally figured it out, and and it was almost baffling to them, which is that he was wildly likable, just yeah. the most likable guy in the world, and and who better than the attractive lean, charming, hilarious Paul Newman. I mean, Paul Newman's one of those guys whose charisma, like if he grins, you start to grin and you don't quite know why yet. Um, Who better to play him? But the second piece of history, so that's the big piece of history, that he didn't shoot anyone until he was guarding a payroll down in Bolivia. That's real. And then the second piece of history that's kind of cool, and William Goldman had to leave it out of the script, and it broke his heart. In fact, like leaving it out of the script, not figuring out a way to to get it in the script was his hardest pinch point of the whole script. Once he finally said, okay, there's no way to fit it in. That's when the script kind of came alive for him. And he was like, oh, this is going to take the whole story is going to take place over a couple of months because he had this iconic true story that he found deep in the archives in the, in the court archives of the state of Montana, which was that when Paul, when, when Butch Cassidy, I almost said Paul Newman, when Butch Cassidy was 21, he had been arrested in Montana for cattle rustling. And that he had been drawn up upon in front of the judge. And the judge had said, Mr. Cassidy, I like you. If you promise never to commit a crime today, uh, again, today, I will let you walk out of here. Right. And then, and then Butch Cassidy responded to that by saying, I can't do that. I can't give you that commitment. But if you let me walk out of here today, I will never commit another crime in your county, which right. at that point in, in, you know, that era of Montana was huge, right? It's not like your county was, you know, some small municipality. It was, it was a whole county. And the judge says, yes. Wow. And, that is Cass- and Cassidy never for the rest of his life goes back to that county and his crew did go back and did pull a couple jobs there and he waited at hole in the wall for them. So it's just an incredible story. You could see how William Goldman would just be like, Oh my God, we have to, right. There's no choice. And uh, it's just so funny to me. It's such a, such a great moment that tells so much about that character. You can also see how, even though it didn't make it in the script, it unlocks the whole character for him. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great way to get into that character as well in that, you know, it is pure charm. And then again, it's Paul Newman, man. It's like, yeah. you, know, you know, it's, it's really hard to grasp the enigma of that power of celebrity. Right. Right. Like it's, it's somebody, I mean, we've been in situations where we've been around extremely famous people and there is this weird aura that they emit or some energy or something where it, it is. Sure pure energetic attractiveness that is somehow transcended through film on a screen that attracts you. So when you're in the room with them, it's even brighter and stronger. Right. Just absolutely galvanizing. No, totally. And and then we haven't even got to Robert Redford, who again, I mean, swagger and laconic and, you know, this sort of enigma as well, but in a completely different sense. And, you know, even historically, you know, Sundance, I mean, he was a criminal. He went to Right, right. No, he was, he was a true baddie and and he was good with the gun and. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it's sort of funny because it's, it's hard not to talk about the sting as well, you know, because this is that era where, you know, these two 
massively famous actors at the top of their game were working together in two amazingly iconic films by the same director. By the um, same director, yeah. And so, you know, it's... Uh, and being charming together. Yeah, being charming together, like being in this rhythm, being in, you know, this yeah. sort of, you know, this ability to get get stuff done in a way that, you know, it's like lightning in a bottle. You don't see it. What's the, what's the closest we've ever had to witnessing that? Is it the Oceans movies? Is that the closest, like seeing Pitt yeah. and Clooney Pitt together? And Clooney, yeah. Or I, I guess like, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I guess is... Yeah, that's a good example right there. Because they, that was very much a simpatico, wasn't it? Like that energy was flowing through those two guys. Yeah, yeah, classic hangout movie. Yeah, I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a great example of that. Um, but yeah, so back to the film, um, you know, they pull the first job. We go back into town to the brothel. Sundance goes and we uh, finally meet Edda, uh, his girlfriend, we get that, uh, we get the first big Burt Backrack sequence with raindrops keep falling on my head and the bicycle. And, pop, um, pop smash at the time, pop by the smash, way. Yeah. Won the Oscar for best song in film, yeah. you know, like, um, and it's so, yeah, huge song, 1969, 1970, uh, still to this day. I mean, it was in Forrest Gump. It's their yeah. iconic song. Um, but it, it works in the film, especially in the scene. Cause the scene is all about, you know, uh, iconoclasm and you know the, the bike taking over for the horse and you know the yeah. future is coming if the future is literally barreling down on them right um you know so it, it works perfectly in in the theme of the film because their era is sort of dying and you know industrial revolution is you know not even on the horizon it's rolling them over right and so many westerns are made about that topic right like so many westerns are oh, the train, the train sure. is coming the you know the people are heading west change yeah. is coming changes in the air and but i think it it dealt with it with such a light touch the the use of a bicycle rather than a car or the train was uh, you know was so delicate and so personal and it was you know and it was also yeah, it was just, it, it, it was, it, there was a little more playfulness to it. I mean, that, by the way, the turns in that scene, because we, we start to think a little bit like, Butch, it, wait, is, is Sundance a rapist? Where's right. this, where's this headed? And then, and then that turns and it's this sexy little game they play and like pretty sexy, sexy little role play they're into. Yeah, absolutely. And then, <laughs> And then Butch shows up after his night that we assume is like carousing and and whoring. And yeah. he shows up with this bike that he's what? Like won in a poker game or purchased from a, a salesman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that he would ever steal personal property in the, as set up in the movie, right? Like, so true, somehow true. he's gotten this bike. Yeah, and finagled it. <laughs> he's finagled it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's finagled the bike. And he shows up and his relationship with Etta is really personal. And, and yeah. she even says, you know, is there any world where we would have gotten together? Um, and he says, well, you're on my bicycle. In some countries, that's, that is more than being married. <laughs> and so, you know, you have like a very unconventional thing. You, you have this lack of territorialism over a woman, which at that time, again, would have been like the Westerns of that era were like, you look at my woman twice and you get shot. Yeah. Exactly. Like, so, so it was really playing with the genre in a bold way as you look back at it. 
Yeah. I mean, it helps that Catherine Ross is also at the top of her game. I mean, she's plays this role so well. Just the uh, way she's able to attach to both of them in ways that feel real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, she has a sexual relationship with Sundance, but she has this deep connection with Paul Newman, uh, Paul Newman's Butch. And uh, it doesn't fade throughout the entire film. Like, you, you feel it as honestly at the end when she leaves as you do in the first scene. No, it's beautiful. I mean, during the, during the, um, montage, the, the, the ship to Bolivia montage, it's actually she and Butch where she has his head on her head on his shoulder during, you know, there's all those black and white snapshots and it's the end of the party night on the boat. And it's him that she's leaning up against and, Yep. Yeah, just a masterclass in acting that she was able to to thread that needle where there's like uh, uh, enough sexual tension to be funny and not so much that it catches the censors of a 1969 movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, no, just like a real sweet spot. Yeah, it really is. And so, yeah, they, um, of course, they go with their plan. They go to rob the train again. Um, with our Sundance sets too much dynamite. The train blows up. Blows the money everywhere, and EA Chairman, EA Union Chairman, Pacific Railroad, Union Pacific. They one thing they didn't think of is uh, Herman was onto them and actually had a posse in the back of the train ready to get them just in case they did exactly this. Yeah, um, and then we have so then the film goes into this. God, was it like a twenty minute long chase scene? I think it's longer. I think yeah, that, I, I like, did the number because it's a, it's a, like a huge sequence. Yeah, massive set piece. Um, and it starts off on horseback, on foot. They take there's a whole break where they um, have a sheriff try to get him out of it to uh, enlist him in the army to get him. They have that moment. They have that. They have the moment up then, in the rocks where they have kind of like a soft night. Yeah, and you know I, I have no idea when they ate during this like multi day race. Yeah, or sorry, yeah. Chase. Um, but they're being chased by this guy named Lafleur's, who's also yeah. was a real lawman. Lafleur's um, always wears yeah. a white bowler. They yeah. they did a great job of making everyone really iconic. There was there yes. was a tracker, an indigenous tracker. Yep. Do you remember his name? I uh, it is slipping um, right now. Lord Baltimore. Lord Baltimore, Lord Baltimore. Yes. Yeah, they said, I mean, they say not to use a, a pejorative or anything, but they say, right, like an Indian with a Englishman's name or something yeah, like that. Yeah, in a, yeah. You can, track, you can track over rock. That's impossible. Oh, yeah, that's you good. Can track over rock. <laughs> I mean, there's oh. never been, I'm surprised it hasn't been more directly, and I'm sure it has been it, the influence of so much screenwriting, but uh, there has never been such a good introduction of villains because they're all introduced with their mystique. Yes. Right? Yeah. There's, and they're all far the, away. The great move that you can see that they've used before, which is the uh, they're riding on tandem horses, and Newman hops over to Red Redford's horse, and they're on the back of it, and the horses diverge. And they think at least this will split the crew, and they're watching it from some lookout. And it does split. And then, bam, they delta back together. And the two guys look at each other and say, who are these guys? And it's (laughs) just so resonant. I just, you couldn't ask for a better moment in film. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic 
chase sequence. I mean, just beat for beat, it's just wonderful. You know, even when they're uh, watching him from during the day when uh, Butch falls into the, the pool to cool off, when they're watching these guys trying to figure it out, obviously the jump into the river is iconic. I mean, one of the most iconic scenes in the film. Yeah, and again, by the way, William Goldman, the, their getaway is is rife with vulnerability. Oh, yeah. Right? It's this moment of like, no, we're not doing it this way. We're not doing it this way. And finally, you know, Newman says to Redford, what's going on? And he goes, I can't swim. <laughs> yeah. And then you just imagine Goldman saying, well, now actually I did kind of put pin myself because he can't overrule his friend in any measurable way. And they're supposed to be equals. And then Dewey just responds, well, the, the fall will probably kill you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Worried about. Oh, yeah. that's just a wonderful, wonderful scene. Um, but basically, the, the whole chase ends with them realizing they're never not going to be chased by the floors. And yeah. he's got Lord Baltimore. And so they need to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we get to the, the uh, montage you mentioned where they go to New York, they party, they take a, a ship down to South America. Um, in, correct me if I'm wrong, but in real life, they actually went to Argentina and worked cattle and rustled cattle for a while, right? And that, yeah, then they went to Bolivia. Yeah, that sounds but right. There was, there was a pretty long stretch there where they were down there for a few years. Yeah. Um, it wasn't as quick as in the film, but, you know, the film needs uh, you know, to expediency of the story sure um so yeah they get to bolivia um you know, they get popped off at this train station that is uh a train station i think we've both been to somewhere in the world in our, yeah. in our travels yeah. where you're just like oh shit what uh, figure this out <laughs> which has probably the funniest moment to me in the whole movie which is where uh sundance says to butch you know they go they're talking about the area and there's like some chickens scattered around and butch was the one who really sold bolivia and butch says well it can't all be like this and and sundance says you don't know that this could be the garden spot of the whole country (laughs) and i just love like for this lycotic character this guy who you know his whole thing in the beginning is is uh Butch says to him, why do you talk so much? And it's this dry, bone dry comedic moment. And Sundance says, naturally blabby, I guess. <laughs> of course, he doesn't talk much. And so like for him to say that is and, and his temper to fizzle like that is so funny to me. And we've I think we've both been in situations where we've been on trips like that, where the person we're traveling with has that break moment where they're just like, what? fuck is happening yeah yeah how did we get in this yeah um it's such a purely true moment uh for anyone out there listening like when you're traveling and you sort of get to that breaking point where you're just like dude no more bullshit let's figure out what the fuck we're gonna do now um but they figure it out i mean you just like you know we do when we're on the road we figure it out and yeah talk to people and next we see them they all are in town and they're back at it like i said they all they know is Robin Banks. Yeah. Um, but they don't speak Spanish. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, this is where Catherine Ross again comes in, you know, really heavily and sort of the trio of the film is it's really them as a trio now. Like the yeah. first half of the film, it's Butch and Sundance. 
second half of the film is 100% the three of them. Yeah. Until the end, of course. Um, of course, because she's a teacher, she speaks Spanish, so she starts teaching them Spanish while they're, you know, going out to dinners, et cetera, et cetera. Um, her and Butch pose as a husband and wife who want to, like, uh, put jewels in a safe, and that's how they end up robbing a place. And yeah. A, one of my favorite montages in the film to an amazing Burt Bacharach score. Uh, I mean, I think I used to send you this track, like, when we well, <laughs> would be working, that's, you know, like. That's not Burt Bacharach, though. You're talking about the Swingale Singers. Ba, yes. ba, 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 yes. ba, 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 oh. Yeah, that one. That's the best. Uh, we we have sent that music video back and forth in Slack channels so, so much times. that if our corporate or overlords were watching us, they'd be like, "This has to be code. This has right. to be <laughs> yeah. this has to be some kind of code for something these guys are doing." Yeah, no, it's just yeah, no, just reminiscing. Uh, uh, but it is that sort of what I love about this film, where I think this film is something that really stoked my ability to move abroad. Was that you can do anything anywhere? Yeah, you know, like it's just another place. Like, yeah, it's going to be different. You have to, you know, learn language and things like that. But you can go anywhere, anytime, and sort of live life. Yeah, and because, uh, like I, like I mentioned up, up top, this film was very deeply seated in me as a, as a kid. Because um, my dad was a huge, huge Western fan, especially mm. of this era. You know the. the what are they called? The, not the Reconstruction Westerns, but the uh, Revisionist Westerns. Right. So like Peckinpah, uh, you know, George Roy Hill, Clint Eastwood, like all those you know, Westerns that shifted from the John Wayne era into the more realistic era, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really felt like, you know, when I would move somewhere, I would be like, yeah, you know. Need to find a, a you know a, a woman like Captain Ross and she'll help me learn the language. Like yeah, need to, need to find a bud like you know Sundance and we'll fucking just go rub banks together. You know, like it felt like the life, right? <laughs> I think I think there was a lot of people in our age group who wanted to find a woman like Catherine Ross. Oh yeah, yeah that too. Yeah, she seemed she spent about forty five minutes in that movie pinning her hair up various times because I think <laughs> right. George Roy Hill was just like this is really favorable for her. We'll yeah. keep doing it. Everyone in that movie, sorry to, to backtrack, but everyone in that movie has such a good intro scene. And hers is obviously, you know, focused on her beauty. And I'm sure someone could argue that it's that it's filmed through the male gaze. And um, I get that case. It's also fun to watch. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Butch's, Butch's is about beauty. And he says that kind of aw shucksy down home thing. He, he goes into the bank and, they say the bank is getting upgraded. And he says, why? And they say, because too many people robbed it. He says, but it was beautiful. And they, the guy says, well, they kept getting robbed. And, and he says, well, that's a small price to pay for beauty. And then Sundance has the most iconic entry scene in any movie ever. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like when someone learns his name, it is all hellfire and terror. Yeah. It's yeah. just this amazing moment of what it causes so you know that those are three great scenes anyway i got you off track they're in bolivia they were in bolivia uh they're in bolivia uh and what's funny i I would actually want to know your opinion on this because i always wondered in the film whether this was just a coincidence as in somebody's wearing the same hat that lafleur's wears 
and it sketches them out so much that you have up robbing and go straight. Was it Lafleur's or not, or was it just a random hat? And they are so paranoid that they 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 ship their gears. I think it was Lafleur's. I you think, think it he was went that far. Oh yeah. Well, I just think it was. I I just think it was like Harriman had money. The you know how's that money. end? Right. Yeah. Or just like how's it end? The Union Pacific Railroad doesn't say to him. Lafleur says, "Hey, I'm kind of interested in this." And Union Pacific says, well, we're not going to bring the bodies back. We're not going to stop the, 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 the money offer. We're not going to stop the, you know, the bounty until we see a body. And he goes, all right, maybe I'll follow it along. And then through whatever lawmaking, you know, grapevine he's part of, he hears about a couple guys robbing banks. They're American. There's right. two of them. They're handsome. There, whatever, and I think he goes down there and and goes to check it out. Yeah, because I imagine the bounty back then was probably worth well more than the travel would have cost. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Or it's yeah. just like one of those stories about obsession that doesn't get told. But I think, right. you know, any good entertainment is really good at having a few of those blind alleys that make us say like. Oh, well, what would that movie have been, right? Like there you could do a movie from the position of LaFleur's that is him going home to his wife and her saying, "Okay, move on to the next thing." And the next thing is a scrub cattle rustler out in the Montana wilderness who's who took four cows from his neighbor's place and, you know, and LaFleur's goes like, "Or I could go chase this lead down in Bolivia." Right. And yeah. capture two of the two of the wildest bad men to ever live. And, and get paid a fortune. Paid so, a fortune. yeah. It, it is interesting in that, um, in reality, when Edna went back to the States, evidently Sundance, if they're on the ship to San Francisco, Santiago to San Francisco, I think. And there were men evidently at the port in San Francisco looking for him, so he didn't even get off the ship. Wow. And so, because they couldn't go on the ship because of the reason. Can't remember reading the uh, biography now. I can't remember the exact reason, but even then, years later, when he escorted her home, they were still looking for them. So I, oh, so I didn't know that one. Obviously, yeah. like there's so much talk that that Butch survived and, and right, right. you know, lived yeah. um, there. She, his sister had claimed at the end of her life that he was alive or that he had that he had come back to visit her at some point. And or maybe stepsister. I know that he had he had some step siblings, too. But yeah, because she left. I remember the plot incorrectly. She left. Sundance took her home to to the U.S. to San Francisco. She disappears into history like nobody knows what happened to Edna. Right. He goes back to Bolivia. Oh, that's why. Back to robbing banks um, because he can't get off the boat. Right. So he goes back to the sun or to Butch and then, you know, whatever Nobody knows what happens after that, really. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so sort of picking up in the film, yeah, she, you know, they try to go straight. Um, there's one of my favorite scenes, of the, another of my favorite scenes in the film is uh, this, you know, white miner straight out of a John Huston movie. Like, literally. Oh, yeah. It's, it's you know, it's, it's you know, straight out of John Huston, uh, 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 Sierra Madre. He's oh, up yeah. there like interviewing oh, with Sundance and um, he asks Sundance if he can shoot and he takes his gun and just like puts it in his hand and tells him to shoot. And he's like, can I move? I, 
I don't know what you need to move for, but okay. <laughs> and then so he's allowed to move and he shoots down like four or five times. But it's just that. <laughs> yeah. And he misses first. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's like, a great moment. By the way, that's that is the same person who says uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate in Cool Hand Luke. That's the same actor. Oh, okay. Right. On. Um, yeah. And he has that beautiful song. You know, he sings Sweet Betsy from Pipe, which is, oh, you know, classic yeah. folkloric story of that era. So he's singing yeah. it on the the day they get ambushed, Butch and, and Sundance get ambushed. I'll tell yes. you a story of Betsy right. from Pike. Yeah. yeah. Across the wide prairies with her lover. Ike, and then they get shot down. And that's okay. the that is the first time, according to Lore, that Butch first killed a man. First and you man, see, right. I, I mean, it's so funny because you said accurately, right? Like they they didn't feel beholden to history. There's a title card at the beginning of of the movie that says most of what follows is true, right. uh, rather than like this is a true story. And then, but but kind of the counterpoint of that that I'm trying to illustrate is that they felt very beholden to certain personality traits. Yes. And if you watch when Butch finally fires his gun, it's the first time he's fired a gun in the whole movie with the intent to kill. And one of the banditos gets hit. The, they go into like a slowdown, and the guy's voice echoes, and he goes, uh, ah, "Yeah." And then yeah. he like falls. Very peck and blah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a it's it's a changing of the guard, right? It, I think it, that's the moment where Butch becomes. I, I mean, I hate to say this. I know he's played by a, a actor who at that time was like fifty five or something, but that's the moment where Butch becomes like he can't go back to being a kid any anymore. No, he's the no boy of James. Yeah, the boyishness, he just, I, I think at that point he knows like, okay, I'm in I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. I can't ever get out of this. I, Absolutely. That's it. I've killed someone now. I can't, I can't just call it all boyish mischief, right? I can't go back to, to, to go back to my story at the beginning. I can't go back in front of the judge and say like, oh, if you let me go, I'll never come back to your district because now I've killed a human being. And so I think that's like, it's actually a big movement moment in the movie that's played a little smaller in key um yeah absolutely and also i mean that's when the shift happens as well that's when you know etta leaves because they're going back to robin banks because they're killing people running straight and sacrificing that part of their life of that yeah. their psyche and everything um also in that scene you see it on robert redford's face when he looks over to newman after that moment yeah, you kind of see him. He he's almost mournful because he knows that Butch is no longer innocent, so to speak. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. That's a uh, tough one. It's a really good look. It's a really good dynamic between them at the end of that scene. Oh. It's like ah, shit. And then that leads into the to the painful dynamic where you know Etta. I joked about the male gaze and. Uh, Catherine Ross, but Etta has this has a great monologue earlier in the movie when she's d deciding whether to go with them or not, and she says, "I'll mend your shirts, and yeah. I'll I'll stitch your wounds, and I'll be next to you every step of the way, but I won't let you die. I won't watch you die. I'll skip that bit if you don't mind." Yeah. And then one day she just feels everything tightening, and they're down in Bolivia, and she looks at. And it's very clear it's it's she's starting with her man. Like that's the moment where their relationship has primacy. 
And she looks at him and she says, I was thinking I would head home. Yeah. And everyone just knows. Yeah. And Butch, uh, Sundance says it to Butch. Hey, Butch. And I was thinking she might head back home. And he says, well, if, if that's what she wants. And you yeah. just, God, your heart just sinks. Every, I mean, I've seen this movie. You, you, you've heard. I could probably like cold quote the movie throughout. Right. You don't yeah. need you don't need the movie. I could probably do it. I've I've never there's no movie on earth I've seen more. Um but every time your heart just sinks. You just so, you know, there's yeah. there's a great line. Uh William Goldman always reminds me of Howard Pyle. Okay. Howard Pyle, a lot of people know, did incredible illustrations of pirates. He wrote a book yeah. called Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. But he wrote, he also wrote the most famous rendition of Robin Hood. And in his version of Robin Hood, there is this beautiful, um, which is really well written. It's, it's kind of funny and it's medieval and it, it, you know, they're, they're always eating fat capons and mince pies. God, there's not a scene in all of Robin Hood by Howard Pyle where someone's not just mowing on a mince pie. He must've written that whole book hungry. But anyway, at the end of it, they're always having parties and, and you know, he's not as good of a writer as Goldman. Everyone's always just like Robin merrily laughed about the merry moment with all the merry men. And it's just I've, but at the end of the book, there's a very beautiful moment that I would encourage someone really interested in this. What I'm about to say to read, which is uh, it's the end of the book. And Pyle was not. He was an illustrator. He's a he's a very famous Art Nouveau illustrator. He was not the most deft writer. And he does you can see he doesn't know how to end the book. He's written written all these cool things about about Robin Hood and introduced all these characters that would go on to become I- iconic. And he says, the last part is a part I won't go into much if you don't mind. It's about the breaking up of things and the falling apart and the unwinding of bonds and friendships. And he he really quickly talks about, you know, Robin Hood's gang getting decimated by the sheriff or whatever. But that's that I, that passage has always broken my heart and made me think of those moments. You know, whether it's five college buddies and the first guy goes to get married and they throw him a bachelor party and and they know that they're going to Delta apart for a long time or a scene like this or the last scene in, you know, to go back to the Ocean's 13 reference, the last scene in Ocean's 13 or where they where they know, like, we we had a special magic. Yeah, it's never going to be the same again. It's coming to an end. And I there's I'm not a very stoic man. As you know, I've, I've I'm sure I've teared up around you far more than any other boss you've ever had. But uh <laughs> But the there's this, yeah. yeah, but there's this, this beautiful moment where you just know what's coming and you wish you could change it and you can't and no one can change it. And they're on a course that they've already been set upon. And yeah. And that's sort of, that's how the rest of the film plays out as well, where, you know, very, they know, they know sure. where the end of their road ends. Like they, you know, you, you have this scene where, you know, they're, they're hunkered down after they've been cornered and Butch is talking about Australia, but. They know they're not going there. Right. They're humoring each other, you know, right. after they, after they get caught and they're both bleeding out because they've been shot and they're, you know, reloading their, the pistols. And you know, I love, I love the scene. It's like, they speak English in Australia and Sundance like takes them seriously for a second. Like they do really. Yeah. They, 
yeah, that, I, I, I doubt okay. that. <laughs> I can get behind that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there's the, yeah, there's so many great moments when they're holed up. There are so many tender moments and it's because yeah. they both know. Right. And, and because, yeah. Because the audience knows that they know. I mean, there's also like one of the funniest jokes and the, the movie hasn't been funny for solid 15, maybe more minutes. And, uh, and you know, Butch has to go get the, the munitions because he can't cover Sundance. He's not a good enough right. shot. So Sundance is covering Butch and Butch gets back and he's got he's got some bullets. And Sundance says, did you see did you see the fours? And he uh, and Butch says no, or or maybe it goes. I guess it goes the opposite way around somehow. And Butch says, "Well, that's good." For a minute there, I thought we were in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And it's this beautiful, like, ache. I mean, as I say it, I want to cry. It's this beautiful moment of friends who love each other enough to lie to one another at the in a beautiful way at the very last second of their lives, and they look at each other. And there's just like so much passing in those moments. That's also why that script won the Oscar for best screenplay, because that stuff's on the page. Yeah. And I remember when I was in film school, like for screenwriting, obviously William Goldman, cornerstone of that education. And um, one of the scripts that we kind of broke down and broke apart was Butch and Sundance, which I was very excited about because I knew the film so well. But it really comes off the page like that, too. Yeah. Like there's some, there's just something about great writing that transcends, you know, it being physical or, you know, two dimensional that yeah. elicits emotion. And then obviously, you know, having George Gordon Hill, you know, put it to film, but also, you know, Newman and, and Rufford acted. But the, that, that little spark was already there from Goldman. So no, it's there. Moment. I've read that script and it's definitely, it's definitely all there and you don't know yeah. who else could like, you know, successfully inhabit it, but you know that it is there to, for them to kind of, um, you know, have that moment pass between them. It's, it's lovely. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a good note to end on because, uh, we need to talk about some whiskey. From God, I, as <laughs> someone who loves you and edits you and has at times, although very rarely, had to to get you to trim down your work i feel so bad i'm going to be texting you in in five minutes and it's going to be like oh my god i wanted to geek out on that movie i mean i i think part of it is well we'll come back don't worry we used to when we were kids we used to have so much discourse about things like this with our pals oh yeah and then and then you start to have kids and there's less disposable time in your life you take on intense jobs and i don't I could have gone on. Thank God you cut me off. I'm sure for all the listeners out there, if there's one of you and there there will at the most be one who's like, I need more of Steve Bermucci on Butch and Sundance, email me. It's very easy. Steve, S-T-E-V-E at U-P-R-O-X-X. But for everyone else, I'm so sorry. And if this if this conversation is any less then 17 hours long know that poor Zach had to spend all this time cutting it. Oh, no, no. This is, this is all cool, baby. <laughs> um, no, we'll, we'll come back for final thoughts on the movie and uh, a little more of our, our reactions to it. But let's talk about some Wyoming whiskey for a minute. Yeah. I'm ready. Um, I'm we ready. both have the uh, National Parks number three 
which is their limited edition release. They put out at the end of every year. Um, beautiful box, beautiful artwork. This year, it was uh, focused on the Grand Tetons. And uh, part of the money from every bottle sold goes to helping out uh, Grand Teton National Park. So there's that. Um, talking about a small batch bourbon made in Wyoming, in Kirby, Wyoming, which is south side of Cody, which is just outside of Yellowstone, um, which is right by Hole in the Wall, where uh, Butch and his crew used to hide. Um, Steve, have you had this whiskey before? I had it. I, I went to, uh, so for context for our listeners, a lot of whom are surely your readers, you know, Zach is so prominent in the whiskey industry that every once, maybe three, three times a year, uh, I will, I will chime in on an article, you know, on a PR relationship that he has. And I'll say something like, well, it might be okay if, if his editor was able to taste that too, so that I knew what I was, what I was editing about. And because you're so well respected, they'll always say yes. So I get to try, you know, a few good whiskeys and a few good bourbons. And in this case, Wyoming whiskey was was doing something in Orange County at a venue that I know really well at a at a local farm here that I spend a fair bit of time at. And oh, so nice. I actually I actually just toured all their whiskeys and got to know their process literally last week at this event. Oh, well, then I'll let you take the lead. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just a little background on Wyoming whiskey. They're based in uh, Kirby, Wyoming, which is a barely a town of, you know, like 60 people. Uh, they built a still out there. They have warehouses out there. Um, it's very dry, kind of sort of high desert plains climate coming off the East Rockies. Um, they're using local grains, local water, keeping it all very Wyoming. Um, and they uh, started off with Steve Daly, who made their first bourbon back in the day. Um, and so this was laid down, maybe not by him, but it was laid down a few years ago. So at least six years ago. Um, and they put out this limited release every year in the late fall. Uh, it's usually a small batch of their prime barrels they put together that are at least five or six years old. And it is, for me, this is like their high watermark every year. This is the the bottle to get, not only for how it helps the national parks, but for how beautiful it tastes and how great of an example of Wyoming whiskey it is. Um, yeah, and now um, according to your writing, they've been on a little bit of a tear lately, right? Like they've had some yeah, good drops lately. They have. So their Outrider, which is a blend of bourbon and rye, has is excellent. Uh, and they have they have this distinct. They found their distinct note, right? So with a lot of these craft distilleries, it takes a minute to find your footing. Um, so like, for instance, with Balconies, like they, they did rye and they did bourbon and they did uh, rum and they did single malt. And now they know we use single malt because that's okay. where their heart is. You know, uh, okay. same thing with Garrison Brothers in, uh, down in Texas as well. Like they know what they're doing now and they're doing bourbon the Texas way in small format barrels. You know, they're not going to do a rye again. Like they know what they're doing and with Wyoming. They know what they're doing now. They they found their footing with these bourbons. Um, you know, they they'll still do a little bit of rye, but they found their footing with these bourbons. And one of the key characteristics that is a through line for them is this creamy orangeness that makes them Wyoming whiskey. And so on the palate, you'll get this little bit of like a cream sickle. Okay. Like orange cream sickle. Um, and it's like you're just like, ah, there it is. There's that, there's their footprint. Okay. Okay. 
Um, there's so much more than that, of course. I mean, this has no, but that's that's good to know. What's our mash bill? Do you know the mash bill by any chance here? No, I do not. Uh, the, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I was told their mash bill, but I do not remember it. Okay, and it's some some I was told too, and I should have written it down. Yeah. But it's, and then they do they they do the Solera, yeah, method, so, right? Yeah. So when they're doing this batch, they're putting the whiskey into uh, a big vat, and so while they're making that particular batch, they you know there's still the whiskey left over from the last batch they make. So it's a continual process. Oh, uh, got it. Um, got it. Okay. What's great about this nose though is you get that like that little bit of like earthy leatheriness. Yeah. And you get the uh, for only a five or six year old whiskey, you get a really nice, get that little bit of like high desert grassiness, dry grass. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, cheers. Yeah, definitely like an oaky. And it's on the palate, it's, um, it's funny because for me, it sort of starts off a little more minty and then it slowly moves from the vanilla to the orange to Okay. Back around to the oakiness, and where it's a really full mouthfeel, like there's no thinness to it. Like there's a little bit of a yeah, a lush thickness, thickness, a lush thickness. Um, you tell I've been writing uh, tasting notes all day, and my words right, are starting right. to blend into each other. By uh, the way, if you have not read Zach's tasting notes, they are so enjoyable for me. I have a very high stress job, um, and it is so much fun for me to get to read his tasting notes, especially, I, I don't know if this is evident. I think you just live and breathe bourbon so much, but the scotch tasting notes are often so much fun because it feels like you let the reins loose a little bit. And there was one that I always tease you about, not because it's, it's tease worthy, but because it actually really helped me as an editor unlock what we were supposed to be doing, right? Which was like you and I have been really rigorous about if you know Zach's work, you know, I, I obviously I give him all the credit in the world for developing it and and doing it the way he does it. With that said, I take a little bit of credit for how rigorous we were on the front end of figuring out what reviewing looked like and, and yeah. how to be how to be that definitive without making it seem like you're judging people. And, and, you know, usually in the beginning of your articles, whether it's a ranking or a blind taste test, or sometimes now I get in the, I, I ask you to do double blind taste tests where you don't even know which bottles are in the mix. And um, you always say like, look, we, we all have different palates, which is, which kind of annoys me, not when you do it, but, but that's what the first thing you always hear from wine people is like, we all have different palates. And then, and, and usually it's like some sort of self-effacing thing where they're like, so whatever you like, you like, drink what you like, drink what you like. And everyone says this, but then secretly everyone's like, yeah, but do drink ours. You know, right, and it's right, right. like, yeah, I just didn't, I had a hard time. It felt mushy to me. And as you know, uh, I don't love it when things feel mushy. And so what you normally do in the beginning of your bigger articles is say like, look, we all have different ha palettes. And I developed mine professionally yes. for a long time. So I'm not saying mine is better than yours. I'm saying it's developed professionally for a long time and that and that shifts it. And, you know, I saw someone um, I, I often drop your because 
because I do need to learn a lot about bourbon in order to be a good editor for you. I often drop your pieces in these really nerdy Facebook groups, bourbon lovers, bourbon finders. And someone wrote this incredible comment about your writing. And it said, as Zach's work illustrates, you know, when people are just starting out, there's a lot of variance because you might like the lower level Buffalo Trace as much as you like the lower level Blantons or whatever. Um, but when you get to the higher level, if you look at Zach's top 10, there's no one in the world who, who is an expert at his level who wouldn't tell you that those could all be in the top 10. And I got that. It was like when you're as focused as you are on something, the variance actually goes back to decreasing. You know, and it's like, oh, well, I yeah, there's there's so much great bourbon out there and everyone's palates, everyone's palate. But the top 20 bottles seem to be like pretty consistent for all the people who are operating at your level. Yeah, well, that's just it. Like, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there in that. Yes, we all have a different palate, but also, you know, people go through four levels of song certification to become a song. Right. Which means, you know, that... <laughs> The level of expertise that you build during doing that is intense. And a lot of that, to be fair, a lot of that is memorization of regions and, you know, minutia and stuff like that, um, which do in bourbon or beer or wine or in sneakers, anything. Sure. Uh, you do it in Rolexes if you want to. Uh, you know, some people do it in sports and they memorize boxers. You know, it's, it's all the same sure. sort of thing. But I think what's most important for what we're doing here, and if you look at this Wyoming whiskey and why I like this, especially this expression, the National Parks Number Three, is that it's well built. It's well made, first and foremost. And I think that's the thing that people are looking for as an identifier. Is this a well made product, whether it's a, you know, a well built car, a well built watch, a well built shoe, a well built so clothing? What are your first things that always tell you that? Because I've seen you write about that before. So what tells you, like, oh, this is well built? Um, balance would be the first thing. Like, okay. If it's not overly in one direction, like for instance, if it's a vanilla bomb, that's suspect. Like, why is it so okay. sweet? Why is it so just that? Um, why did it take on so much oak or so many of the oak esters basically? Well, well, for instance, let's to support that. If you're putting something in new French oak, it's going to be a vanilla bomb. So okay. if it's a French oak finished bourbon, you're going to expect more vanilla because there's no more vanilla in, in French oak. So sure. you're like, okay, that makes sense. That can be a vanilla bomb. But if you're giving me a sherry finished bourbon and it's a vanilla bomb, I'm sort of like, well, what are you doing here? Um, you're, you're going against the notes, those dry fruit notes that you want to pull out from that barrel. Right. Mm -hmm. the, and so things like that. It, sort of what you're looking for in initial balance. Also on the nose, you know, all, all this stuff is chemicals at the end of the day and eat it all. Um, and so do those flavor notes, for instance, like diacetyl presents as like buttered popcorn when okay. it's fresh off the still. Okay. And so if you still get that buttered popcorn and this is like a, an aged distillate, you're, you're, there's something going on in your aging that's a little faulty. So things like that. So, you know, if you're looking for something that feels, it feels chemically, you know what I mean when I say yeah, that, as sure. opposed to real, sure, uh, like a real note, uh, those tend to be a little faulty. Uh, obviously there are 
you know, things that are mistakes as in if you get like really heavy match sticks on something or smells like sort of like musty garbage, like trust me, those things come through in younger whiskeys, right. especially when you're judging them. And it's sort of like, yeah, this isn't quite there yet. Um, but, and then you're just after that, you're looking at depth, like, okay, does this give me, you know, I think we go back and forth with this pretty well, where classic means standard, mm-hmm. you know, essential means a little bit better where it's giving you more and quintessential means it goes beyond the, uh, beyond a suburban to a suburban. Okay. And so this is the sort of thing where with this whiskey, for instance, it is, it, it goes beyond classic. Like you're getting those classic notes of, you know, the wood spice and a little bit of fruit and a little bit of creaminess, but you're also, well, you're getting more distinct notes that are, oh, this feels like the dry grasses on the high desert. This feels like an orange creamsicle. This feels like worn saddle leather, not just leather, not just grass, not sure. just citrus, right? And so, so that so extra you, layer of depth means more value. Which I get and I love. For you, would you say that, uh, here's a good question for you. Would you say that once the storytelling in your brain starts, that's when you know it's something special? Yes. For instance, yeah. versus, you know, sometimes I'll see a tasting note from you that'll say... You know, baking spices is obviously incredibly common and, and, you know, vanilla and, the crunch. and then, and then, and then other times you'll go really kind of ethereal and, and ephemeral and be like, you know, this is like, I, I'm getting some of that wicker, like when, and I remember once we had a, a big, long protracted conversation. And, and the reason we have these pro- conversations is because I think they make us both better and we're both, you know, if we have a big overlap in our personality, it's it's a level of rigor connected to excellence, right? And so uh, we had this long conversation about about someone critiquing the fact that you talked about wicker in right. one of your reviews. And you and I both immediately knew. You said, "Well, yeah, I talked about wicker. I didn't I didn't say that it tasted like wicker, like I chew on wicker." I said it it conjured for me like sitting on on an old wicker chair, unpainted wicker chair on the front porch yeah. and you're sitting and it crackles. You lean back and the wicker crackles a little bit and it lets off, you know, some level of aroma. And that really resonated for me. I remember like that that unlocking so much and me going like, yeah, I get that. And then sorry to, to go on a rant. And and when I go wrong, do let me know. But the thing that you really taught me with your writing, which was so true is like, sometimes you'll be like, uh, Jim Beam, right? Jim Beam is, if I'm not mistaken, is known for a really distinct, like stewed cherry or cherry cola type note. Right. Absolutely. And when you write about it, you know, I, I remember there was one beam expression where you're like, Oh, this goes beyond the beam you know, cherry note. And it just like, is like a punch in the face with cherry cola. Now I like cherry cola, but if you drink it every day, it, it's so saccharine that it doesn't evoke anything else. Right. Just like I like romance. Watch where I go with this. Just like I like romance, 
but but a book that is romantic by its n- entire nature is so on the nose that it doesn't go anywhere else. Right. Whereas something what you're interested in bourbon, from what I can tell, is when it conjures something, when it conjures cher- cherry cola without me having to drink an entire dang cherry soda, which is the best brand and I'll, I'll hear nothing else. But it conjures it conjures vanilla pancakes without me having to mix up the batter and then looking at it and going like, ah, that's actually, I don't know if I want to put all those carbs in my body at 8 a.m., the whole thing. And I think like that bit of storytelling about sending your brain and your palate and your olfactories to another place is deeply interesting. Yeah, I think there's a sort of key for me in saying unlocked, brought this back to my, my thought, is, you know, we're talking about chemicals that hit our tongue, hit our nose, hit our olfactory, are tr- turned into electricity that is sent to our brain. Right. And once it gets to our brain, they turn into keys, and those keys are looking for locks to open doors. And if you don't have a lock for that particular chemical, it's not going to open a door. It's just going to do right. nothing. But if there is a lock for that particular chemical, that electrical impulse based on what was in that glass that went through your nose and your mouth, it's going to unlock the door. That door is going to be a specific memory that you have created on your palate in your brain throughout your life. And so yeah. it won't just be vanilla of, of vanilla that you like, that you know. It'll be the vanilla that your grandmother used for her cookies. It'll be the vanilla you smelled right. when you were in Costa Rica at the chocolate factory. It'll be the vanilla that you smelled on a card when you're in a perfumery in Paris. It'll be a specific vanilla because that's what's in your brain, right? Yeah. It, yeah. That, that electrical impulse going to your brain, making that key can only unlock the door that's in your brain. So I did a great uh, tasting with some friends who came uh, to visit a month or so ago. And I had a whole bunch of um, Brazilian oak finished bourbons and she grew up in Belo Horizonte in Brazil. And so for her tasting notes, her experience with those bourbons was 100, well, let's say 99% different than mine because she was getting, you know, her childhood memories of watching through the central market in Belo Horizonte and, you know, the, the sponge aisle from the sponges from the sea. And she was getting, you know, a certain coffee shop that she walked by on her block. She was getting all these different little things that you and I just don't fucking have. Right, right. And so that's what I, why I love food and drink and travel combined in that all these things come together to elicit these experiences. And what blows my mind and what I love about this so much about whiskey and spirits is that this little chemical inside this glass can bring back that memory like that, like time travel. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's nominal. No, it's, it's magical. And I, I can, when I hear you, when I read you write about it, when I hear you talk about it, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many things that are joyful for me. One to see someone at the top of their game in anything is, is fun. Um, but also like there is that, there is that real love for the experiences that you're sharing. And, you know, you and I are both very similar in that we often want to reach out and grab people through the through the ether and be like, hey, do you get it? This is your right. life. You're you're and getting right. this incredible moment, you know, uh, which what's, I think is cool. What's crazy as well, like this is really opened up like I'm getting a, like a dry chili on this now. Like a little bit of a. 
not really like an answer, but like a, a little bit of a heat, right? Like a little bit of a, a hot chili pepper. Yeah. So is that, and, and if you ever want to do a splinter podcast where I just ask you from a neophyte's perspective about, I would do it. Um, but is that, is that ancho, is that the transformation of the mint that we were getting at, at first? Is that what's shifted? Cause for me, like right when I, right when I put my nose in it and had some, that like that minty mouthfeel or not minty necessarily, but like me- medicinal is always when I struggle with bourbons. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it shifts over now to a more, you know, it feels Forgive me for for uh, trying to do a Zach, <laughs> but it feels more Western in a way now, mm-hmm. right? Sure. It feels yeah. more like you're kicking around the fire. There's a certain, yeah, like I a, know what you mean. A certain kind of uh, woody dustiness that last week I I was out. God, I made a terrible mistake and took my kids and my wife <laughs> camping. It, near a hot springs and it was just too late in the season for it and we were about to we were we were about to have to pack up and go in the car i mean i'm not going to act like we didn't have a safety net we we would have just hopped in the car and driven three hours home at, at 2 a.m but uh it was so cold and i am just throwing these mesquite logs on the fire as fast as i can and just like whatever dry cordwood i can find and yeah. breaking things off, and I'm getting some of that dusty Western okay. uh, yeah. thing. I can see that. Without, I mean, I the the one I get that's the most easy for a neophyte like me that that you reference is the creamsicle thing. Yeah, because it's both creamy. It almost tastes like someone made you a Manhattan with orange oils, right? Right. Absolutely. That's what's funny. Like I might be overusing this, but it. None of this should make sense. Like when you say orange cream sickle and chili pepper and dusty sure. wood and like, you don't really think of that working together, but that's sort of the point of whiskey is that it does work together because it's not all at once, it builds. And so like yeah. the, the dustiness you're getting now, part of that is just the, the oxygen getting into it from us swirling around the uh, glass and, you know, aerating it and different things are starting to open up because they're becoming available because of what's going on in there. Um, and it's going to shift again. You know, you, you let this sit out for half an hour, 45 minutes, two hours. It's going to continually change, just like when you add water to it. Right. Um, but enough about whiskey. Final thoughts on Butch and Sundance. Ah, uh, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it defines the Hangout movie, right? It's the, I think yeah. you said to me on the phone yesterday, it's the first buddy pick, which I really yeah. like. Um, it kind of is. And, and yeah, you just, you would want to spend time with these guys forever. They're so charming. When's, yeah. when's the last time that anyone made, you know, being a, a thief and a murderer look so much fun. <laughs> uh, they're just wildly charming and, and funny and smart and clever. And, and, you know, Catherine Ross, I think adds so much delicacy to it. And it's, it's the ultimate rewatch movie. It's not, what I call the ultimate rewatch movie is that uh, the Denzel Washington movie that always comes on TNT, Man on Fire. 
Oh, yeah. that that's yeah. the movie that if you've seen that two or three times, I th- by the way, I think that's probably the most underrated movie of the past 30 years for anyone who hasn't seen it. But it, I don't think it's one of the best movies ever. And but if you if you've seen it one or two times, then that's one of those movies. I think Simmons talks about this where you could start wherever you start and you just go. Yeah. But this this yeah. isn't quite that. This is something where it's still sacred enough to me where I would want to tell people like, shh, like you're if I was in a room and, and you and I were watching and we were doing other things and you had the keystroke sound on your phone and it was making so- sound while you texted during this, I would still shut you up. Yeah. Still, it's still like a sacred, a sacred movie, if that makes yeah. sense. And then balance that with the fact that it's such a comedic affair and and so funny and so clever and and makes you admire Goldman, um, and and you know teaches you so much for us as writers teaches you so much about writing. I mean, so much about so much. Yeah. To your point, you know what was on the page. He gave them so much on the page, and and so much of it was between the lines. Yes. Yeah. It was even the humor. All, all lean, no fat. Right, right. Um, and how many, how many humorists really right now operating do a great job of of trusting? You know, we've you and I have both handed in scripts to different people, and I know it's so hard to trust that the executives that that everyone every step of the way will get it. So it's right. like instead of instead of hitting a joke with a. Um, you know, delicately like Goldman does, we're all tempted to just like hit the, the ant with a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just never is like, a, there's never a hard driving. Um, Did you get it? Did you get the like, joke? Right. Yeah. There's always, never that energy at all. No, it's always so beautifully subtle, which is, uh, that's why this movie's great. I mean, so glad we got to talk about this film because it's just, uh, it is one of the great, films of American cinema, full stop. Yeah. Like everybody was top of their game. George Roy Hill, you know, Newman, Redford, Ross, like everybody was just firing on all cylinders. Goldman, of course. Um, and then this whiskey fire, you know, all cylinders. Like I said, it's well-made whiskey. That's yeah. beautiful. Um, and it, and it's from, you know, part of where this history takes place in the American West, uh, which makes it, I think even extra special because you don't get a lot of whiskey out of Wyoming. And sure, shit, yeah. whiskey that tastes this good out of Wyoming. <laughs> so there's that as well. Uh, to wrap up, I think, uh, Steve, why don't you uh, tell everyone about the fact that you're also an author? Yeah, I also I also write novels. I, I just had a novel come out called Race for the Ruby Turtle, and it has uh, received some measure of acclaim. So if if you were going to buy one novel by me, it's the one I would recommend, I suppose, if you go just by critics. Um, and and I like it a lot. And I've, I've, you know, been lucky to get to support it these past couple of months. So I'm proud of that. Obviously, come visit Zach and I at Uproxx as often as you can. We, you know, we have a lot of fun there. And, and Zach you know, not to turn this chance for self-promotion, which I'm always a fan of and and never hesitate to do back on its head. But, you know, Zach, it, for those of you listening, he really does write about alcohol in a way that's really illuminating and helpful. 
and fun and sprightly. You know, it doesn't, it's never bogged down, but it also, um, you know, takes, takes it seriously in the sense that it's fun. Like, you know, once I remember I was, I was overanalyzing some intrapersonal relationship once on a jog with my cousin. And I, I remember like looking at her and being like, is all this analysis kind of weird? And she goes, well, analyzing things is fun, right? And that really unlocked something for me. Um, the same reason why college age men love to talk about like movies for eight hours and or or 45 year old men talk about movies, the same movie for an hour and a half or whatever. But, uh, you know, the way that you do whiskey is is in that same vein. And it, I get tremendous joy from it. And I think our readers do. And certainly I would encourage anyone listening who has been charmed by you uh, to. Yeah. And in the new year, I, I hope to start having Zach give reads of some of his articles so that you can hear that sonorous voice. So that would be fun. So, yeah, I mean, that's it, everybody. I mean, I've had a lot of fun on this podcast the last uh, four or five weeks doing exactly this. I mean, I, again, Steve, I'm really glad we could end this together because I feel like this was the grand finale and we got to go deep on what we do which yeah. I think is important for uh, people to hear, but also on a film that, you know, kind of br- helped bring us together as yeah. friends, like not even as, you know, a professional relationship, but as, as friends, as people. And uh, that's the beauty of this film, as well as, you know, the, the core friendship throughout it is uh, something that I think resonates with people no matter what. Um, but yeah, so Film and Whiskey uh, Nation, thank you so much for letting me take over your airwaves. And next week, we'll be back to the regular program with Brad and Bob. So, everyone, take care and goodbye. Steve, thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye.